All right, well, good morning, church. Open up to the New Testament book of Acts in chapter 10. And uh, if you're a guest here with us this morning, one of the things we've been doing starting last week is getting into a new series called Imago Dei as we explore what does it mean to be created in the image of God and why do Christians care about this whole range of issues that have to do with image bearers. Everything from adoption to uh, the protection of the unborn to issues of racial strife in our city and in our world today and a number of others. So we're going to look at these things for a total of five weeks, Lord willing. And this week brings us into the discussion of ethnic diversity. And really that is featured against the backdrop of a lot of ethnic strife, which we don't have to do anything but just turn on the news to see. There is a lot of ethnic strife, racial strife, uh, animosity, hostility, division in our society, in our culture, even in the church. So we want to hear what does God's word say about this issue. Now this one is, um, I'll just own it right here at the top. This is the hardest one. Uh, this, is a, this is a field that is packed with landmines. It is difficult to move forward in discussion because everybody finishes each other's sentences before they're done. It's a challenging issue to talk about in our culture and in our world today. The heat is turned all the way up and everybody's in a, in a bad way because we've been quarantined for months. And just the, It's a perfect storm situation for us to talk about something as heavy as this is. And I just want to own from the top... Um, I don't come to this discussion, I don't come to this sermon this morning as an expert. Um, I come, I hope, as a practitioner of ethnic reconciliation. I, I hope I come as one who is learning, one who is on a journey. And I hope that's not just me. I hope all of us are on a journey of wanting to do this well, wanting to listen well, wanting to hear well, wanting to ask good questions so that we can come and build bridges together rather than light everybody up, right? And so I also come to this message with, with two things. I come with a heavy heart, and I come with hope. And I come with a heavy heart because I know that this topic is particularly heavy for our black brothers and sisters who are members of our church, black men and women and children in our faith family. This is a difficult topic. They're exhausted. Many of them, I've heard some of them tell me this, and I've got brothers in, in the city who I walk with in close personal relationship, and they say, man, I'm just wore out. I'm exhausted. I'm so tired of not being heard. I'm just trying to get a message across of what I'm experiencing, and everybody's telling me you're actually not experiencing that. You think you're experiencing that, but you're not experiencing that, and, uh, and, and so when, when, when they talk, and then people who look like me say, you're just playing the race card, they feel exiled. It's like, well, what, what can we say? Can we talk any about our experience without our brothers and sisters on the other side saying, no, that's actually not happening, that's, that's fake news. It's, that's not helpful, that's not, that's not bridge building, that's not producing unity. When, it, when a family member in your household is suffering, what does a healthy family do? Interrogate? No, when a family member is suffering, the family presses in toward each other. The family listens. The family isn't like Job's friends who are saying, yeah, I can see there's a problem and it's mostly your fault. That, that's not what a healthy family does. A healthy family says, keep talking. We're here. 
and we're gonna pray, we're gonna walk together, we're gonna get through this. Let's keep sharing, let's keep exchanging. We're burdened for you. Romans 12, Paul says, here's what the church does. Church rejoices when we rejoice. When others rejoice, we're rejoicing with them. And when others, our brothers and sisters, are weeping, we weep with them. We don't say, why are you weeping? You don't have a reason to weep. No, we weep with those who weep. There's an empathetic, compassionate spirit that's meant to be in the church, even in topics as difficult as this. So there, there's a lot that I don't know, and I'm owning that here at the top, but I'm learning. And here's what I, I do know. I do know that God wants us to reflect his character, and his character is marked by compassion and his character is a character of justice. He loves these two things. They are not at war. They are, they are found resident in the heart of the God whose image we are called to reflect. I know that. We can know that from Scripture. That's not controversial at all. I know that if we are humble, God will do great things. And if we're proud, he'll pack his bags. I know that from Scripture. James says that. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. If we want grace to flow in our direction in this conversation, what we need is the grace of humility. All of us. Not just some of us. All of us need humility. And I do know that we have an urgent mission. And the urgent mission requires a multi-ethnic church to stand together in the cause of the gospel. That's clear in scripture. So, so what does that mean for us? I heard Pastor Tony Evans, uh, African-American pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Church for many years and author of many books. Uh, he writes, and I think in a really winsome and effective way into this, this whole conversation. I heard Pastor Tony Evans, he said the most important thing to know about racial reconciliation is that the end goal isn't racial reconciliation. That's just the means to an end. He said, the end goal is ministry. I love that. Here, here's what he says. he says. He says, when you're in a war, you don't care about the color of the person next to you as long as they're shooting their bullets in the same direction as yours. You don't care about the class. You don't care about the politics of the person standing next to you as long as they're shooting in the same direction that you are. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle, and in order to win the battle, we need to be reconciled so that we can do ministry, so that we can engage in the mission that God has, the urgent mission of the gospel that God has given to his multi-ethnic people. So Acts 10 gives us a picture. It gives us a vision for what happens when the wall of hostility, the biggest wall you could find in the first century of hostility, wasn't between black and white. It was between Jew and Gentile. And Acts 10 shows you what happens when that wall comes down. Something awesome happens when that wall comes down. And so I want us to pray as we begin our time together. God, please help me. I, um, I feel my need for you. Each Sunday, I feel my need for you in a very keen way this morning. I want to be a truth speaker, and I want to be a bridge builder and our culture seems to insist that you can only pick one of those these days. And I'm praying for grace. I'm praying for a heart of humility in my own life. And I'm praying for that, a spirit of humility all across our entire church to hear hard things, to process hard things. Free us, oh God, please free us to show the world something they're not gonna see on the evening news. Free us to show the world a foretaste 
of the new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're starting with uh, the way that this text tells a story. And the beginning of the story is what we have here is a Gentile conversion. You can go ahead and fill that in in your notes because we're going to come back and start to retell the story in just a moment. But follow along with me in Acts chapter 10, beginning, if you will, in verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, he said, what is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. We're going to skip ahead to verse 9 because the camera swings over, so you guys start traveling right after that happens. And the camera swings over to Peter. They're on their way toward him, and here's Peter in verse 9. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky, and a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's the only guy who does this, and he does it repeatedly. No, Lord. (laughs) No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Peter's basically saying, it took me a long time to get this holy. There's no way I can eat that stuff that's unclean, that's immoral food, and I'm not going to compromise the place that I've reached, right? Verse 15, again, a second time the voice came to him. God hasn't given up, right? He, even though we're slow on the uptake. What God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened not once, not twice, three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. Let's skip down to verse 24. So Peter heads on the way there, verse 24. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends So this is Peter arriving on the scene. God had led him to be there. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. So there's obviously some religious confusion going on here. We'll sort that out in a moment when he starts preaching the gospel. But for now, Cornelius is largely in the dark about what he's supposed to do with this emissary from God. Should I start worshipping? He starts singing. Peter says, cut that out. That's that's not who I am. Right, so he interrupts that. And in verse 26... Peter lifted him up and said, stand up, I myself also am a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. And Peter said to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. So let's just pause for a second. We'll come back to the text. So keep it open before you. We're going to come back to it in a minute. So what's happened so far? We met this Roman centurion. He's standing there in verse 1 in all his Romanness. He's standing there in all of his centurionness, right? All the emblems of that power. 
there he is, his name is Cornelius, and he's praying to God. He doesn't know which way is up, but he, he does generally know there is a God out there, and I, I want to know him, and he's, he's reaching out to this God. Doesn't mean he's a believer. Again, he's going to worship Peter in a moment, so there's obviously a lot of confusion there, but the Lord is clearly drawing Cornelius to himself, pulling him in, and God tells Cornelius, hey, I want you to send for a guy named Peter. He's going to clarify a lot of the things you're still confused about, so send for, for Peter, and so then what happens? Then we find Peter. Again, Peter's over in this other place. He's praying. Seems like this completely detached scenario where Peter is, but these two things are lining up. God has providentially arranged it to where this is going to lead to change. Peter is hungry. Peter is praying. He has a vision of food. Sheet drops down, and on the sheet are exactly all the wrong animals. These are the animals you can't even buy in any Jewish supermarket. You can only buy these if you go to the Gentile supermarket where they eat unclean foods, and Peter's never been inside a supermarket like that, right? So Peter, just as soon as he sees the sheet, he just turns his nose away. He's like, there's no way. And God says, oh, there is a way. You're gonna start eating that stuff. And he says, not me. I'm too holy for that, right? And meanwhile, while Peter is perplexed about this command from God to eat Gentile food, a Gentile man is sending people to invite Peter to his Gentile house. These things are all converging. And so Peter then gets up the next morning, he heads to this Gentile man's house, he walks inside, and he doesn't just find Cornelius waiting there, he finds Cornelius has invited all the neighbors. He's invited all of his close friends and his Gentile family members. So the house, and he's probably got a pretty sweet pad, right, funded by Roman oppression. So everything in this whole house screams Roman oppression against the Jews, and Peter walks in and he sees a house filled with all these Gentiles. But he reaches this point, Again, in the text, he says, Peter says, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. Now, that language is really intentional because what just happened? Peter had a vision about forbidden food, about unclean food, right? God just told him in verse 15, what I have made clean, you shouldn't call unclean. You shouldn't call impure. So Peter, he was slow at first, but he's starting to catch up, right? Here's the point in your notes. The vision on the sheet wasn't about pork. It was about people, it wasn't about food. It was about the mission of the gospel to bring together a multi-ethnic family under one roof. That's what God was gunning for when he laid the sheet out in front of Peter with all the wrong animals on it. There was a story told of C.S. Lewis when he was only six or seven, a precocious young, very bright young boy. And one day, C.S. Lewis announced to his father, he said, Daddy, I have a prejudice against the French. And his dad said, why? And Lewis said, if I knew that, it wouldn't be a prejudice. There's a sense in which that's kind of what's at play here in Acts chapter 10. All of Peter's life, his culture has said, the home of a Gentile is unclean. The food they eat is unclean. The things they touch, if you touch what they touch, you gotta go wash your hands, right? You, you don't go around, the ground they walk on is unclean ground. You, it's where you walk around some of the places where they, where they live. 
And he walks into this house that is very Gentile, is decorated probably with Roman gods. And in that moment, God says, Peter, I'm not talking to you about a new food plan. I'm giving you a larger family. That's what Acts 10 is about. I'm not giving you a new diet. I'm giving you bigger family. I'm including Cornelius and all, this whole house full of Gentiles are going to be called brothers and sisters in Christ. Cornelius, here's the awesome thing, right? He's confused, but he's hungry. Never has someone at this point in the early church, never has a person as unlikely as Cornelius been so hungry to hear the gospel. He, he doesn't just want to hear it. He's invited everybody, right? He, he wants his whole family group to hear it. And, and you see verse 33. Here's when Peter opens his mouth and starts to speak to them. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. And here's what Peter says. He began to speak. Now I truly understand, this is the aha moment, that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, and that he is Lord of all. And Peter goes on to preach Jesus Christ as Lord of all. He preaches what Christ has done in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. And he preaches that Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. And then Peter says, look at verse 43, through his name, everyone who believes, not just Jews who believe, everyone, this whole house, if you believe, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. In other words, Cornelius and the whole house basically said, you had us at hello. You had, the moment you said believe, we were ready. God had prepared us and the Holy Spirit comes down and doesn't just save Cornelius, he sweeps the entire Gentile house up into his family. It's an epoch-making moment in the New Testament. Verse 45, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit, note this language, had been poured out even on those people, right? Even on the Gentiles. So, so there's the story, but here's where tension comes flooding into this text is right after this amazing thing happens because you know what happens next? So God has brought salvation to a house full of Gentile people and Peter baptizes them and then Peter sends basically baptism pictures to all the apostles and he says, look, look what just happened. You won't believe this. And he's sending photos to all the apostles and then word is spreading, the text says, to all of Judea, word is spreading about what just happened. And then Peter says, I gotta get to Jerusalem and I gotta report to my brothers and sisters what's taken place. And he walks in the door in Acts chapter 11, verse three, and what do the people say? They say this, basically, Peter, you went and ate with those people? That was the reaction of the circumcised party. This is in our notes. The news of God's salvation of the Gentiles reaches Jerusalem, and Jewish believers' response is, you went and ate with those people. 
You remember what Jesus said about salvation. He said, all of heaven rejoices when how many sinners repent? When one sinner repents, heaven goes nuts. And one wonders when Peter says, it wasn't just one. One would have been awesome. Cornelius coming into the family would have been awesome. The whole house, his entire friend group, his whole family went into the waters. And one wonders, where are the balloons? Where's the streamers? Where are the party hats? Where's the cake? Where's the celebration? Where's heaven's celebration? Family just got bigger. Judgment averted. Christ has saved people by his grace. Look, here's the thing. Um, I wish that kind of response in the church about the grace of God to the other ethnicity, I wish that response was just ancient time response. I wish that was just stuck back there in ancient history, but it's not. George Whitfield, if you don't know that name, arguably the most effective evangelist in the history of the church after the New Testament, preached a very clear and compelling gospel message about the urgency of salvation, the cross of Jesus Christ, and the need for repentance and faith. Preached that with incredible clarity. He also owned slaves. He didn't just own slaves. He fought for and contended for the legalization of slavery in Georgia way before it ever happened. He wanted it to happen. He even broke the law and worked slaves in Georgia before he was legalized in 1751. A lot of Christians ask pastors these days, just preach the gospel. Um, yes, absolutely. What else could help us in a time like this but the message of the gospel, but it, but it does make me want to ask in light of confusion that has hounded us for centuries on these issues, it does make me want to ask, what do we mean by just preach the gospel? What do we mean by that? The Apostle Paul just preached the gospel. If you ask him, summarize everything that you preach. He says, here's what we preach. We preach Christ and him crucified. That's the message. He said that in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a 16-chapter letter. And it's not a 16-chapter excursus on substitutionary atonement. He presses in on the application of the gospel to all manner of relationships in the church, moral issues in the church. He's pressing the gospel home. He's He's untangling what are the implications of the gospel for our lives. He's showing the gospel's got long arms, and it reaches into a number of places in the life of the Christian. Look, here's the thing about George Whitfield. He had a practical reason for seeking to legalize slavery. You know what it was? He wanted to build an orphanage. He wanted to do ministry, but to make his orphanage financially solvent, he needed slaves to build plantations. Here's a picture of the orphanage as it was designed in the mind of George Whitfield. He used slave labor to build that orphanage. That orphanage is called 
Bethesda, which ironically means house of mercy. You see, we have a problem, don't we? We have a huge problem. It is sobering what damage we do to image bearers while just preaching the gospel. Whitfield got on slaveholders. He got on their case and he said some convicting things to them. You know what was the convicting thing that he said to slaveholders? He said, why aren't you telling your slaves about Christ? He didn't say anything about releasing them. He didn't say anything about obeying the law and not having them in the first place. He just said, why aren't you evangelizing your slaves? Much more recently, Pastor Tony Evans writes this from his own experience. So this is not just stuck back there in 1740. Tony Evans writes, I will never forget the constant word pictures painted for me as a child that were designed to instill the inferiority myth within me. There were the White Tower restaurants that made it unmistakably clear that colored people were not good enough to eat there. I remember the white-only signs at places of business and the signs that pointed to inferior rear entrances and read, colored people enter here. Then there were the white churches that praised God on Sunday as we did, but would not allow my family to worship there. My father would say, son, they believe that God meant for the races to be kept separate even when it comes to worshiping him. I knew the inferiority myth had taken root when as a budding adolescent I thought, as did many of my contemporaries, maybe it would be better if I had been born white. This was the beginning of my love-hate relationship of seeing myself, loving the personality God had given while questioning the package it was wrapped in. We still have a problem. Friends, here's, here's the next point for us to hold on to. We best distance ourselves from the sins of our ancestors by not allowing ourselves to forget. You know, that's, read the Old Testament. That's what Israel's prophets did all the time. Read the Psalms. So many of the Psalms are telling Israel, let me tell you your story. I'm going to set it to music so you don't forget what happened back there, what we've done back there, our sins back there. I want us to remember what happened. Israel's prophets were historians. They were saying, don't follow in the four steps, in the, in the steps of your forefathers of your ancestors. They said, read it, read Isaiah, read, read Jeremiah, read Amos. Amos said, on behalf of God, I need to say something to you. Israel, it's not gonna be comfortable. God doesn't wanna hear your songs anymore. It's actually meaningless to him. But justice will count as worship. Now justice is the new worship. Let's, let's do that one. Justice and mercy, humility, that's the new worship. Let's do that kind of worship. Friends, I said this last week, I could say it every week in this series, we can't honor God and dishonor those who bear his image. A Gentile conversion, number two, a painful contrast. A painful contrast. So I want you to imagine with me the church as it is in heaven. 
So imagine with me a, a gathering of God's multi-ethnic people as far as the eye can see gathered around the throne. The hymn that the church had sung for centuries will be a reality. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. That will be reality. We'll see it in the new creation. Standing in the presence of Jesus, all these people, everybody's wearing white robes, symbolizing the power of the cross to remove every stain of sin, all the sin we had committed, all the sin that held us for however long it was in our lives. We get robes. Everybody gets one. We all get robes. And in the center of that massive throng of countless worshipers stands the slain and resurrected lamb stands the risen King Jesus. His glory lights the skies. We don't need the sun anymore. We've got him. He radiates through the entire new Jerusalem. There are no more elections that are needed. No election cycles. No election debates. The king over all the kings is in his place and we would have it no other way. We want him in charge. He is our creator he is our redeemer, he is our friend, and he is our advocate, and he will reign forever. And in all directions, you look around in that scene, and if you had to describe what you see in all directions, maybe the word that would come to mind would be joy. Joy. Joy inexpressible and filled with glory, pleasures evermore at God's right hand. If you had to reach for a, another term, you might describe it as multi-ethnic family. This massive, awesome, many-colored family. And these people delight in one another, not living one neighborhood and one living in another neighborhood. They're, they're together, they love one another, they delight in the God whose image they reflect. Imago Dei in all directions in the new creation. A people everywhere arrayed in the dignity that belongs to image bearers. A multiracial, multi-ethnic people. Every shade of black, white, and brown. The new creation is so much better than colorblind. It's, it's color-blessed. Can the church not be color blessed. Can we not strive for that heavenly vision? What, what I described is what's waiting for all who repent and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. The hymn described it this way, what a day of rejoicing that will be. How different is the world I just described from the one we're waking up to every morning. The church as it is in heaven and the church as it is on earth. Instead of joy, we see pain. We see violence, police brutality. We see cities burning. We see unarmed black men and women killed, often with no justice to follow. That's what we're seeing. Instead of family, what do we see? Instead of seeing family empathy, we're seeing hostility. White evangelicals, not, not just white people, but white evangelicals in many places accusing black brothers and sisters of playing the race card, which is basically just a shorthand way of just saying, I need you to be quiet now. 
I, I know what the story is. I don't need you to tell me what it is. I'll tell you what it is. On the other hand, black evangelical leaders who say to crowds of white people right here in our city, of black people in our city, and they said, that you, we need you to do the right thing. You need to leave the white church and come back home. That prospect leads to what? White churches becoming even whiter than they were before. The church becoming even more segregated than it already was. How is that a vision that moves us forward toward a multi-ethnic picture of the church of Jesus Christ? Can we not lament these realities? Little black boys and girls in this church who have asked their parents really hard questions, tears in their eyes saying, Mommy, do, do white people in our church think I'm a bad person? These are little kids. Do they think I'm going to be a bad person? Can we not, church, lament how out of sync the church on earth is with the church in heaven? And when I... Um, when I pray, Father, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it's, it's not my expectation that the world's gonna stop being the world. I'm begging the Lord for the church to start being the church. There is another way. Gentile conversion, a painful contrast, and finally a gospel connector. gospel connector so God set somebody free in Acts chapter 10 and I don't mean Cornelius it was John Stott the great theologian who's no longer with us he's with the Lord and he said this about Acts 10 this chapter is not so much about the conversion of Cornelius as much as it's about the conversion of Peter look in verse 34 if you've got your text still open Peter is changed Peter says now these are his words now I truly understand. I finally get it. God wants all the nations around the table of grace. He wants all the nations, a multi-ethnic family in his house. You know where history's headed? Here's where history's headed. We get a preview window in the book of Revelation. This is where it's going. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language nobody could number standing before the throne and before the lamb and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb Acts 10 sets a new trajectory a revelation seven word trajectory for the church Here's how you have it in your notes. Acts 10 is where the train of missional witness veers in the direction of multi-ethnic worship. When our kids were young, uh, we would set up this wooden track on the floor and we would play trains for hours and this thing would just weave and go back and forth and curve and go this way and that. You know, when God spoke to Abraham at the very beginning of all this, and he said, I want to tell you, here's, I'm going to tell you my plan of where I want to get things. I'm going to start with you. 
and we're going to move forward with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you and your offspring. But eventually, this thing's going to veer, and it's going to land in this place where there is a multi-ethnic family rejoicing before my throne. So we're going to start here, and we're going to get all the way over there. But, but when you keep reading the Old Testament, you just keep seeing Israel slap down another one of these. And there's no veering in the direction of Revelation 7 until Acts 10. And Acts 10 is this piece that changes the direction of the mission of the church. It sets a new trajectory for God's people. When God says, Peter, we're changing things up. What you thought was impure is actually going to become family. What you thought was unclean is actually now going to live in your house. The gospel in Acts 10 transforms two people, not one. The road to multi-ethnic praise of Revelation 7 runs through Caesarea on a day when two very unlikely people, a Jew and a Gentile, find themselves under the same roof, and what happens? Both of them are changed. Cornelius meets a savior, Peter gets a brother. That's, that's what this piece means. That changes the direction of everything. This is in our notes, the name Christian began in Antioch right after this event because they didn't have a name for what just happened. We can't just call it Jewish. We can't call it Gentile. It's some third thing. And so they said, let's call it Christian because it's both. Ethnic diversity marked the church and made the gospel compelling. It platformed the gospel. So I want to share with you the fruit of some discussions that I've had with brothers, friends, pastors in the city, two black pastors, two white pastors. We walk together very closely since 2016. We, we meet regularly. It's the fruit of discussions we've had at our elder council retreat just last weekend. And the hope is that these provide some clear biblical tracks for us to pursue as a church as it relates to this difficult issue. I'm going to read them. Number one, God created all human beings in his image. Therefore, every image bearer possesses equal dignity and worth in the eyes of God. Number two, racism is sin. Unpacking that a little bit more, racism, individual and personal hatred toward a race perceived to be inferior or passive attitudes towards societal structures that burden a particular race is a result of the fall. Number three, Sins do not go extinct. Therefore, ethnicity-based oppression, which has been clearly seen both in biblical history as well as in U.S. history, is still with us in one form or another. And wherever sin strongholds exist, the church must, through example, prayer, work, and witness, pull them down in the power of the Holy Spirit. Four. Jesus died to bring male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile into one family, having destroyed the walls of hostility which divide humans in every culture. Number five, the church is to be an eschatological community, previewing the gloriously diverse community that will gather for praise around Christ's throne in the new heavens and new earth. Number six, the task of the Great Commission, the church's chief assignment, is aimed at the gathering of God's blood-bought male and female multi-ethnic community. And the accomplishment of this God-given assignment necessitates the coordinated efforts of God's male and female multi-ethnic community. Number seven, 
The multi-ethnic community which the church is by God's design does not immediately suggest that every local church in every place will display the same diversity in its fellowship, worship, or leadership. That said, hard pivot here, the church will pray and actively seek to increase the display of God's multifaceted glory through a diverse membership and leadership. Number eight, the church is not beholden to politics. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The church's citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, when it confronts sin, it must do so without a view to political gains or losses. Number nine, Given God's heart and God's plan for his redeemed community from every nation, followers of Jesus will confront the sins of personal racism, but will also peacefully, lawfully, and within the bounds of our gospel distinctiveness, work to address societal structures that perpetuate inequality. And number 10, the remedies the church brings to bear on the sin of racism like every other issue must be gospel-infused remedies manifestly anchored to the inerrant and sufficient word of God. Here again, our primary impulse as a church is we abide biblically. Brook Hills, can we, can we decide together we're not gonna go the way of the world? That, that's not our program for moving toward ethnic diversity. We're gonna speak the truth, but we're gonna speak it in love, not in sarcasm, not in snarkiness, right? We're gonna, we're gonna manifest the same patience with others that God has shown to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not going to make political alignment with me a litmus test for whether we can hang out or be in the same church. And we're not gonna give up on one another. I pray that can be our story because if that's our story, we get to be one of these pieces. We get to, as a church, veer in the direction of multi-ethnic worship and do so on purpose. Instead of just laying down one after another of these guys, let's, let's turn toward the vision that God has for our future as a people.